Hello, and welcome to Evaluland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Evaluand. It's been a little quiet here this summer as I reflect on this podcast and take a break and try to relax and get into the swing of the fall semester. But I'm excited to have this episode with Nina Sabari. She is the founder and principal of Intention to Impact. And we're going to talk a little bit about her incredible business journey from evaluation independent consultant to entrepreneur. This is also the topic of her PhD dissertation, and that's actually how we met. We met at Claremont Graduate University when she started the PhD program in 2016. I'd been there for a couple years getting my master's already, and so we were on that PhD journey together. And so I'm excited to talk a little bit about her dissertation as well, if that comes up in our conversation. Um, But otherwise, I'm just very excited to have you on the podcast, Nina. Welcome to the podcast, and can you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Yes, thanks, Dana. Really happy to be here. Um, I've loved listening to your podcast and honored to be a guest. Um, We've known each other, as Dana mentioned, a long time, since 2016, and we're also part of a mastermind group that meets um, every other week, and we've been part of it for two years now, so it's been um, fun being on this professional journey alongside you. Um, Thanks for that intro. So as Dana mentioned, my name is Nina Sabari. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Intention to Impact, also known as I2I. And we are a um, boutique research and evaluation consulting firm. I'm located in the DC area. I have a small team of consultants um, and a large network of independent consultants that sometimes we tap into different different projects. Um, We're mostly working with foundations and nonprofits and helping them use data to drive innovation, impact, and strategy. Cool. I'm very excited to dive into talking about intention to impact. I've gotten a bit of the the behind the scenes look at a lot of this through our mastermind groups and stuff like that. And I'm just really excited to talk a little bit more about it and and dive into some of your thought processes and and business processes and how you kind of got into all of this, which is actually where I'd like to start is How did you get into evaluation and what made you want to get your PhD in evaluation? Yeah, so let's see. I, like everyone, fell into this field. I feel like that's such a a common trope that everyone talks about. Oh, yeah. Um, I got my master's in political science. And after grad school, and actually during grad school and after, I started working for an international research company in the D.C. area. So that was called D3 Systems. And it was such a great first job. Um, I had really, I got really hands-on experience managing applied research projects in countries all over the world. And so D3 works in over 120 different countries. And I got to manage projects in the Middle East and North Africa, um, South and Southeast Asia. So I got a lot of international experience, mostly doing survey research in developing countries and a lot of um, nationally representative public opinion polling. So it was mostly like quantitative work. Um, my role as a research analyst, we would be in between the clients who are a lot of government agencies or development agencies who had specific research questions and objectives. And then we were also in between um, the field teams. So the actual research partners who are on the ground collecting the data either face-to-face 
um, through mobile devices, um, through telephone interviewing, all these different methods of data collection. And so we would work in between the clients and the data collectors and help kind of bring like the full research cycle to life. And so through that first job, I got really hands-on experience in applied research, but I had no idea that evaluation was even a thing, um, like most people, right. until I had this one really catalyst project. And we, our company was managing the survey that was part of a broader quasi-experimental design. And so it was an impact evaluation for USAID and there was a whole design where we were collecting survey data from treatment villages and control villages who weren't receiving any interventions. And there was like a, you know, experimental analysis to understand the difference, uh, whether or not the treatment was, a, well, the actual intervention was effective. And that was the first time that I ever really thought about the potential for survey research to serve as part of a tool for impact evaluations and for and that's the first time I realized evaluation was different than applied research it was really like a veil was lifted with this with this particular project where I was exposed to this whole industry of evaluation and I started going to AEA and realizing that there's a whole discipline um, behind evaluation itself um, and one thing led to another and I got really really more and more curious about evaluation um, beyond research. And I did a graduate certificate program at American University in program monitoring and evaluation. And then that like really gave me the foundations, got my feet wet, really validated my interests in the field. And from there, one thing led to another. I met a couple mentors who really encouraged me to kind of dive all into evaluation, which led me eventually to Claremont Graduate University where you and I met and where I decided to pursue um, a PhD in evaluation and applied research. Because I realized at that time, if I wanted to transition away from just solely applied research and towards evaluation, I could either kind of horizontally jump from job to job um, or kind of jumpstart my career. That's how I saw the PhD is like accelerating um, by diving in and gaining these really specific expertise to be able to then practice at a higher level and be someone that could kind of not just be analyzing data, but more thinking creatively about evaluation design, which is what like really got me interested in the work itself. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I'm pretty sure when you started the PhD, you were, you were already consulting. Were mm -hmm. you already of the mind that you were going to start a business at some point and do that? Or did you come in thinking you were going to be a consultant the whole time? You know, I did not have any idea that I was going to start a business or be a consultant when I started. Um, what happened was um, when I left my full-time job, again, that company was just fantastic and so supportive in, of me going off and chasing my dreams. And so they said, like, we fully support you, go do this PhD program, and you still have these projects that we would love for you to continue working on. And so they gave me the option to continue on as an independent external consultant. And at the time, independent consulting was not on my radar at all. And I didn't really understand the difference, honestly, because I was a full-time employee and I thought, okay, I'm just going to go from full-time to part-time. But they made it very clear for business reasons that they couldn't have a, an employee in California because, you know, California has all these different business um, laws than Virginia, which is where they're based. And so they were like, okay, like you can continue these projects, but 
You no longer get an email address. You no longer have access to the server. Like you are independent and you're an external consultant, although you're doing a lot of your same job responsibilities. Mm. And at the time I was like, all right, well, it doesn't really make a difference to me. I'm, I'm just grateful to have some income while I'm um, a full-time grad student. But then, but then while I was getting into it, it occurred to me, oh, there's something actually really freeing about this independence. And that it really dawned on me that as an independent external consultant, you know, I'm no longer tied to just this one company and I could kind of spread my wings a little bit. And, and I, and so my first client was my former employer, which is kind of a funny relationship change. But once I framed it that way, I realized like, oh, they're not, this isn't my boss. This is my client. And like a light bulb went off for me. And I thought, you know what, I could have other clients. I could have a whole portfolio of independent clients. And so that was like kind of my first target audience. Um, as an independent consultant, I was working as like a subcontractor for other small to medium-sized research and evaluation companies. And so instead of going directly after clients and end users themselves, I built a network of relationships of small businesses who they had a client, they had a project, and they just needed more people to fill capacity or to fill specific expertise that I had. And so um, in my first few years of grad school, from 2016 to 2018, that's what I did. I was kind of like a freelancer, like a consultant who filled in where I was needed. So sometimes that meant being on a project from start to finish. And sometimes that meant just tapping me in at the very end, like here's the data, we just need data viz or a report. And so it was really, really fun because it meant I got to work on a really diverse range of projects and do a really diverse range of tasks and different roles and responsibilities. And so. I got very quickly a lot of different types of experiences, um, which was a really fun way to get experience while in grad school, because I could immediately kind of practice the knowledge that I was gaining. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You mentioned there's a difference between consulting, freelancing, and being an entrepreneur. And I know this is part of your dissertation and part of kind of your what would I say? Like one of the rationales behind your dissertation perhaps is looking at entrepreneurship specifically. So could you explain to us what you see as the difference between a consultant and an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So part of this difference started when I started to see this difference like experientially, I guess, mm. as I was working as a consultant. And then I was like curious about it and wanted to, you know, as an academic, put some like operationalize, like, is this difference real or not? And, and how does it play out? Like, what are the implications? And so, okay, so I was working as an independent consultant freelancer, and it gave me exposure to all these different types of small businesses, which was really interesting in seeing how these small businesses, how they were operated, like, I kind of got an inside look into different types mm -hmm. of businesses in a way that when you're an employee for just one organization, you only kind of see one way of doing things, right. but I got this chance to see all these different ways of doing things. Um, but the hard thing was that I didn't really have autonomy over the projects themselves because as a freelancer, um, I was tapped in as a contractor to do certain tasks for certain projects. And I was happy to do it because I got tons of experience. I learned from so many other brilliant consultants along the way, and it was really wonderful. But the, the frustrating part is I never really had a direct relationship with the client and I never really had a say in how the overall process was done. Like, you know, to some extent, 
they, a lot of the firms I worked with were very collaborative and they really valued my perspective. But at the end of the day, it was their client, like the, the firm itself, the, the business itself, it was their client and I was just a contractor. So once I did my piece, that was it. They kind of got the credit, got the relationship, got the, and they controlled the budget, all of that. And so while working as a consultant, although I loved it, I re- it, sometimes it felt really, really stressful because it felt like instead of being an independent consultant, which is, I loved that autonomy, I felt like I had five different bosses. And I actually ended up feeling like I had, you know, five to seven different part-time jobs all at once, which felt like a lot more. And so I started to reframe that instead of thinking, I have five to seven different bosses. I thought, okay, I have five to seven different clients and I'm my own boss. And so it was kind of this mental shift for me from going from a freelance consultant to thinking more like I am my own boss. And it was really just to take control of my time. Um, But then also beyond that, um, it was this realization that I wanted to be more client facing. I wanted, there were things that I loved about the way certain businesses worked. And there were things I hated about how some businesses worked. And so I wanted to kind of take what I was learning and create something that was bigger than myself. And so through that process, it took a lot of like, soul searching and dealing with imposter syndrome and learning and making mistakes and all sorts of stuff. But it was like 2016 to 2018, those were the years of freelancing and learning about the industry, the business, all of that. And then in 2018, something really clicked for me that I realized, you know what, I don't want to just be Nina, the independent consultant. I want to be I want to be one of those small businesses that hire me, you know, I want to like play, play that different role. And so I started intention to impact kind of on a whim. Honestly, I was going after a project that I realized if I had gotten it, it would have been a big enough contract that I could have worked directly with the clients and brought people on. And I actually didn't end up getting that contract, that, that initial contract that forced me to start an LLC and like create intention to impact and start a firm. I didn't even get it. But what it did was it forced me to kind of think differently. And and my name, Intention to Impact, it just came out of my tagline because as an independent consultant, I had um, these business cards that was just like Nina Savari, independent consultant. And on it, it says connecting the dots from intention to impact. So it was always like this phrase that I kind of used as part of my independent consulting and had to make connections with other evaluators for partnerships. And then I just like, it, I stuck with it. I was like, oh, I love that intention to impact I buy. So I filed in, um, through LegalZoom, which is just like this quick online service to start a company. I, I filed an LLC in the state of Virginia. Um, and then even though it didn't, it wasn't an overnight transition. Like I wasn't a consultant one day and an entrepreneur the next. It was like, I was consulting and I started a company and I continued consulting. And then I started moving all of my contracts like legally into intention to impact. So that means rather than um, paying taxes from my personal social security number, I was paying taxes using my federal employment ID number, which is it's just mm-hmm. different. You're taxed different, you're looked at differently. But even though I was still independent consulting, I started doing everything just to like have cleaner books, like under intention to impact. Um, but for a while from 2018 to 2020, I would say I was straddling both. I was still continuing as an independent consultant, doing all this freelance work, and I had intention to impact on the side. It was kind of became my side hustle, like thinking about the brand, like really doing that soul searching and thinking, if I'm not just doing work for all these other companies, like 
who do I want to do work for? Like, who is my client, my target audience, like the actual clients I want to serve beyond just partnering with everyone else. And, you know, because I told you I was learning from all these different small businesses, it made me think like, how, how is intention to impact different? And what can we add? Like, what kind of value do we bring to the world? Like, how do we show up? And I started talking like a we, even though it was just me, myself at the time. And then I had my like lucky break moment where I'm in 2020 in like the midst of all the craziness of that, of, of the pandemic and everything going on that year. Um, I did get that big enough contract, that big like first six figure contract that was big enough to um, enable me to bring on other consultants and to take on the project myself and build the relationship with the client directly. And so it was a really catalyst moment for me. Um, and it was like towards actually kind of the spring of 2020, like when the whole world was falling apart, this oh. happened. Um, and it actually, in some ways, was good timing and weird. I mean, I hate saying that, but like I was at home and only at home. And so I really threw myself into intentional impact and thought like, what could this really be? And so I started walking away from my um, freelance contracts, like less and less independent consulting, more and more business development for I2I. And, and one thing led to another. And like this year we worked on nine contracts, I2I directly, and I don't have any freelance subcontracting gigs anymore. And I have a whole network of consultants that I'm tapping into projects. And so in the past like year and a half, it's really, really, I've made that leap from consultant to entrepreneurship. And um, going back to your original question, like what's the difference in my dissertation, I outlined some of those real differences, um, everything from like business structure to like flexibility. I think independent consultants, they're trading time for money. So it's Mm. usually hourly usually, or it's fixed cost deliverable, but that's what it is. You're working um, as an independent freelancer and your time is exchanged for money. But as a business owner, it's trading value for money. And it's a little different because time Mm -hmm. is certainly a piece of it. But thinking about growing the business, we have to think about what value are we bringing to the client? How do we price a budget that's big enough to bring on the right consultants to help work on this or eventually, hopefully employees? And then thinking about like the mix of budgets and portfolios that we have um, on a year to year basis to make sure that the business is profitable. And so it's a totally different way of thinking about budgets when you're thinking as a consultant versus an entrepreneur. And in the evaluation field, there's actually not a lot of people who, who study the difference or think about the difference or talk about it. And so that's part of why I, I kind of really leaned into it as part of my dissertation is my dissertation focuses on what is the role of small businesses and entrepreneurship in shaping the supply and demand of the, of the economy, of the market evaluation marketplace. Right. Yeah. And, and there's another one that you bring up that I'm a, as an academic, I'm a little uh, fascinated with because it seems that more academics aren't consultants or entrepreneurs, right? You make this argument that we are moonlighters, <laughs> that yeah. we just kind of come in and do a little bit of evaluation work, but it's because it's not our primary business, right? Because primarily yeah. we're teaching, doing research um, as academics, we are just moonlighters. Yeah, actually, you know, Scriven was the one who wrote that. And I think 95, he started, he wrote an article about um, different types of evaluators. And he talks about like, you know, the difference between internal and external and all these different types. And he, he, he coined that term, or he didn't coin that term, but he used that term moonlighting um, to describe what a lot of academics do. Or I think people call it like pracademics or pracademicians, Mm -hmm. or there's all these like words um, that blend 
um, scholars and practitioners of evaluation because of course it is such an applied field. So if you're a professor of evaluation, like applied work is, is inevitably part of how you um, continue to like contribute to the field and how you teach, right? A lot of right. professors take on um, evaluation projects and then hire their students to, care, to help carry them out. And there's a lot of evaluation centers within um, universities but actually, in my dissertation, I do talk about the implications of that because um, professors who are doing evaluation and hiring students, I would say they're not entrepreneurs because their primary focus is not building a business. It's not. It's not about their. It's. It, that's not what it is. It's about like giving students learning opportunities, which is really different. But there are real market implications of that <laughs> because, and and I hope I don't get any like too much slack for saying this because I myself I straddle the line between academia and practice I mean I'm I'm working on my dissertation now and I am an adjunct faculty member at American University now so I'm still have one foot in the door in academia um, but yet a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interviewed and participated in my focus groups and surveys for my dissertation spoke about how academia can hurt the industry because sometimes professors take on projects for less money to give students opportunities, yeah. but then it creates this expectation among commissioners that this is how much this work costs, when in reality, to stay afloat um, as small, for small businesses, it costs a lot more than that. And the work we're doing in this knowledge economy, I mean, these days, like data are commodified and, and the work we're doing has real monetary value, even though a lot of evaluators aren't doing it for profit you know, it's, it's like naive to think we're not in a commercial industry and that professors moonlighting like has a ripple effect to small business. So yeah, that's definitely part of my dissertation. I'm a little nervous about it because of course, by nature of a dissertation, it's in, it's in the academia, (laughs) it's in scholarship. So kind of, it might be a little controversial, but it's just reality. I mean, I haven't read it yet, but I assume it's less controversial than you might think. So yeah, it it reminds me though. I, uh, when I was getting my PhD, I was, uh, I don't know, a year or two out from graduation and uh, some person running this program reached out to me and was like, Hey, I found you on the AEA website on the find the evaluator thing. And, you know, it seems like you're right up my alley. I'm wondering if you're interested in doing some evaluation work. And I was like, sure, great. Let's, let's have a chat. And uh, we have a chat, talk about the project. And at the end, she's like, great. So you want to do the project? I'm like, I mean, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. It sounds great, but let's talk cost. And she's like, wait, what? She literally thought because I was a PhD student that I would do this for free for my dissertation. And uh, I had to gently tell her like, that's not how it works. And I'm sorry that you've been working with these programs because I found out the past like 10, 12 evaluations she got were all students doing them for their master's thesis or dissertations. She's been getting free evaluation work for decades. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that for you. I'm sorry, but it does. It really affects the marketplace when people underbid themselves. I also see it from consultants too, though, right? And they underbid to get the contract and then say, oh, wait, you want all these extra things? You're going to have to increase, like the costs Mm -hmm. are going to increase. And so then they were not as competitive cost-wise in the first place, but they got the bid, they got the contract. Yep. Or worse, or worse. 
um, firms or individuals might underbid to win the work and then realize it's so low. So not do as good of work as, as needs to be done to like meet the goals of the evaluation. And then the clients, that's what they expect. They're like, okay, well, this is about how much it costs. And this is about the level of quality that is given or the value. Right. So part of my dissertation explores not only how small businesses influence the supply, as in the quality, the service delivery, delivery, what kind of products we're putting out into the world, but also how small businesses impact um, demand. So thinking about how the decisions and business practices of small businesses influence um, clients' expectations and their perceived value of evaluation um, in the field and in you know in their work, and so that's something we struggle with, right? Like as evaluators, we have an image problem. Like we don't, the general public doesn't really understand what we do and what our potential value is. And so we're constantly trying to define our field and, you know, show like we have to like, not fight for, but like demonstrate our worth in, in, in many ways. And that, so it's tricky because small business in particular, I think has a big role to play in setting that public image and showing commissioners, like this is how much it costs and this is the kind of quality you can expect. And so I'm hoping that some of the implications for my dissertation can be to help us set that bar high in a way that helps the use of our work and the value of our work towards our ultimate goals of social betterment. Like we're in surely a commercial industry but the work itself is so much more than that. But when we underbid and when we don't understand the business implications, it actually has actual implications on our methodologies, the value of our work, the use of our work. Yeah. Well, and I think going back to the academic side of things and the moonlighters mm-hmm. and whatnot, um, it reminds me about how we get numerous clients um, at Claremont that were coming to us because they had gotten uh, an evaluator to work with them, but they weren't providing them good evaluation services, usually because they were academics in another field. They weren't primarily an evaluator, but for example, they were primarily a developmental psychologist doing work in some sort of, let's say, literacy program. So a literacy program or, or school district would reach out to them for support and they'd treat it as a research project. Right. And so they wouldn't think about, well, what are your questions and needs is like, well, I've got these research projects. I've got this research pipeline I need to focus on. I'm going to do that and not think about what you need. And they'd get fired and then hire on people who do evaluation, right? Who know what value evaluation is as compared to research, right. um, because that's what they're looking for, yeah. which again, goes back to the whole, like, what is evaluation and how do we communicate it to others and demonstrate, like yeah. you're saying, the value of evaluation um, right. to not the, the demand side of things, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not just an issue in small business. It's like across the field is we have a marketing yeah. issue. Um, but what can we learn from small businesses in the fact that we have like a unique role in the marketplace because we're constantly thinking about marketing and we're constantly thinking about, we have to think about sales. And it feels icky because most evaluation firms are led by people like me with no business background. You know, I'm, I fell into this field because I genuinely loved like the art and science of evaluation itself. And I decided to get a PhD because I wanted to become an expert in evaluation itself. But like I told you, I had no real business um, aspirations when I started but now I definitely do. And now I kind of feel like that's my new, I don't know, or my current calling, who knows, I can change my mind next year or something. But right now 
I do feel like this kind of really this desire to figure out how to um, have intention to impact show up in the world that can actually succeed in this, you know, whether I like it or not in this capitalist system, um, while still being um, a business focused on liberation and social justice and living our values. And so it's a tension I struggle with on a daily basis is thinking about how do I succeed as a profitable business in this new knowledge economy where data are commodified and do it in a way that's true to my values. And like, what does it mean to be a feminist business? You know, not like, mm. not just following the typical patriarchal ways of how to make money, because that is like prevalent in the business literature. And I spend a lot of time reading business books and they're almost always by, you know, white men that are like, if you want to make money, this is how, and it's, right. and it doesn't feel just right. And so I'm struggling with like, trying to be successful based on models of business success while trying to do it our own way, recognizing that we're also in the space of social justice and knowledge work. That's not kind of your traditional product development or that kind of sales. Um, you know, we're not in a commercialized space that's driven by cons consumers or ads or that. Kind. So it's different, but what does it mean to be a business in this space and succeed and not just like stay small? Yeah. So, don't well, know how, but yeah. <laughs> working on it. That's all what has been really inspirational, kind of watching this journey from the sidelines and kind oh, of thanks, witnessing Dana. it all is, well, <laughs> the intention that, that you have behind all of this and your reflective practice behind all of this is just incredible. Like I love seeing every time, every once in a while on Instagram, you post some of your, like, here's like our quarterly, like business review or something. And I'm, I'll pause to like read it. Cause I'm like, this is freaking incredible. Like this, it's really inspirational. Like how you go about that process and how reflective you are on it. And like, I, this is something I struggle with, right? I'm just kind of like, go, go, go. I've got goals. I'll move, move towards them. But I have a very hard time of pausing, stopping, reflecting, and thinking about like, wait, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What are the values underlying what I'm doing and who I am and who I want to be and all this stuff. And so I'd just like to hear like, what, what is that process for you like of reflecting both personally and professionally on all of this? Because you've got things like your values that you have on your website, you have, um, I, you know, journaling practices, you have mm. these business reviews and stuff like that. And there's a lot that yeah. you do. So like a little insight I'd love. Thank you so much for noticing because that is really, I think our superpower. Um, and so it's a good time to mention, like, I am not doing this all alone. Um, Kathleen Dahl, who you know as well, Kathleen is part of our mastermind group, who we also know from, from CGU. She's really like my business partner in crime and all this. And together, reflective practice is like just kind of the cornerstone of what we do and our partnerships specifically. And so we've been thinking a lot about, you know, not only do we engage in reflective practice, but we reflect on reflective practice itself. It's very meta, but we were um, recently to thinking about like, how can we even get better at this reflective practice work? And, and it occurred to us that reflective practice um, requires like different types of resources. Um, to make it happen. And so we actually talked about this recently. We figured out that there's internal and external resources that go into reflective practice work 
and it's, it's really essential for business, I think, especially. Um, so some of those internal resources include like that, like you're talking about kind of the, it's, it sounds cheesy or cliche in this day and age, but the self-care strategies and really so much about reflective practice, which is, you know, the intentional reflection and learning about what, what we're doing in our work itself and in the business. And then actually like institutionalizing that to turn in, to change our behavior and change our strategy that requires like a lot of internal trust and confidence. Like this entrepreneurship life is not for the faint of heart, I will say, because it, it's, it's, you know, I'm vulnerable all the time. I'm always yeah. putting myself out there. Like I'm, I'm selling myself, I'm selling my services and I have to believe in what I'm talking about because people can see right through you when you don't believe in yourself. Right. And so, so much of that internal trust and belief and confidence means like tapping into my internal resources to really cultivate the kind of calm, confidence, trust to allow for reflective practice. And so that, like you mentioned, that for me looks like regular journaling and breath work, which is something that um, I do regularly um, through Libby Smith and her, her breath work coaching. Um, I also have a life coach, Marin Lauka. Um, she has a company called Yes And by Marin, and she's been my life coach since 2018. So we've been working together for a really long time. Um, and just like, yeah, just kind of putting, it sounds selfish, but by putting myself first, I can really show up in the kind of way that I need to show up as a leader for intention to impact for our consultants, for our clients. Like I really need to be putting my best foot forward every day at work, which is a lot of pressure on an entrepreneur. And so, so it's kind of tangential to your question about reflective practice, but I feel like all of that internal work is so necessary to have that um, confident humility to be reflective because the truth is in our reflective practice, we realize like we're making tons of mistakes. I mean, I've said this before, like I have no business background. And so every time I'm working on a budget or, you know, they working on the business strategy, like there's tons of mistakes and pivots. And, but every time we do, we create a space for reflective practice. So we're actually learning from it and growing from it. And it's like actually feeding into our next strategy. And so that kind of leads me into the next part. So there's the internal work and then there's the external. So the external resources needed for, for reflective practice is just really like the time itself, the actual time, putting time in my calendar to think about business strategy. We have like, I think it's seven pillars of our business that we focus on ranging from the operations, business development, um, marketing, our, you know, HR, um, what else? The actual work itself, the pro like the service delivery. And then I don't know, sorry, there's two more, but there's seven different <laughs> aspects of the business that we have to kind of like keep a pulse on all of them for the whole yeah. business to work efficiently and, and to be running um, in like an intentional way. And so we have, um, we have space actually like every other week we take a pulse check on the, on those different pillars of business. And then also um, we have like strategic points. So the beginning of every year, the beginning of this year, we started with a strategic plan and we had quarterly goals and every quarter we come together and look at the, the strategic plan and the goals, like what's working, what's not working, how do we adapt? 
And we really like build that time and space for that reflection. And then also just the open communication channels. Like we use Slack at Intention to Impact and there's a lot of real time learning and chatting on Slack um, and just like creating a space where we can make mistakes and be vulnerable and learn from it um, is just so, so important. And so having that trust with the team um, having clear communication channels and like openness. So that's something Kathleen and I are, are really good at is we're constantly communicating and serving as each other's sounding boards and not embarrassed to do so. So I think like having that kind of relationship makes a difference. Um, I can go on and on, but there's all sorts of stuff we do for in our like practice as to be reflective in, in how we're working as a business and working together. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I I like the breaking out into internal and external resources. Yeah. I was just going to say, it just occurred to me recently how important the internal work is for the team reflective practice, because yeah. I think where it shows up the most is the humility and making mistakes. I think in the past, because, you know, I'm a like a forever academic, like I've been like when you're in the school mindset, it's all about grades and doing the right thing and being yeah. like smart or, you know, whatever that means. But in the business sense, like I don't have that kind of book smart. It's all experiential. It's all like a real time learning and growing for me. And so I have to be humble in that. And I have to realize like, oh, I wasn't trained for this. No one's telling me what to do. I'm in the driver's seat here. And so, so much of it is just being open for the ride and open for the opportunities, but then totally open for the mistakes and like calling it out when I see it and learning from it. And so that to do that, to be like strong in that and not feel like a failure, I had to work on myself first. And so it really is a journey and I'm not done. That's for sure. Like I'm still learning a lot and still working on the internal stuff to make myself like capable of reflective practice in like a meaningful way, more than just lip service, you know? One thing on your website that I'm curious to learn more about, and I remember you discussing how this might work before it actually like came out on the website is your uh, I2I collaborative, where you have that space for other consultants to join into your network and join in the work. So I'm curious, like, what was some of the thought processes behind that? And how has that manifested so far? Yeah, it's a great question. It's very much a work in progress. But when we first started, um, when I first started growing, um, it occurred to me that, well, I can't do this work alone. And I didn't want to, like, I really want to be leading intention to impact again. So it's something bigger than myself. So it's creating opportunities for others. And, and, and also as a generalist, like I'm not equipped to carry out all this work. And so we work across a wide variety of sectors with different types of clients and their research and evaluation needs are really grounded in, in their, their own sectors, whether it's public health or education, you know, food security. And so as a generalist, I have a lot of ideas and direction around evaluation design itself, but I need to pull together the right team of consultants who are a little bit more grounded in the subject matter themselves. And so I've always felt strongly that it's important for intention to impact to succeed. We need a network of collaborators that we can tap in and I'm really lucky because because I was independent consulting for so long um, before formally jumping into entrepreneurship, I built a big network of consultants because that's kind of how you, you know, it's like word of mouth. That's how you get work. Yeah. And so I'm 
I'm really plugged into the AEAs, the American Evaluation Association's independent consulting TIG, which is like the community of practice of independent consultants. And I'm actually the chair of the TIG this year. And so I know a lot of those folks really well. And, and luckily, I'm well connected that if and when we get an opportunity, I can think about, you know, think back to my Rolodex of consultants and tap folks in. Um, but when we were building the website, the website was kind of a big catalyst for us to think intentionally and be yeah. out loud about it because it's like really like a formal the website's sort of like your storefront honestly in this world in this work and so while I knew that um, tapping in a network of consultants was integral to the success of the business by putting it on the website we had to think like how is this actually going to work and so we we launched it as the i2i collaborative and we put out a form where you can join the collaborative you can introduce yourself to us um, tell us about your experiences your skills what kinds of work you're interested in and every time somebody submits a form we immediately schedule a chat with them and have these conversations and and in the past i did some you know in our mid-year review, I realized that we connected with 26 different independent consultants and had these conversations. Um, but I'm really glad you asked how it's going because the truth is it's a little bit tricky to balance this because we love building our network of consultants, but we also, it's really hard because we don't always have opportunities to engage folks right away. And right. so that's where it's hard is we talked to like 26 independent consultants last year, and I would honestly love to work with every single one of them. But unless the opportunity is present, I can only collaborate with so many at a time. And so it's just a tricky balance, like wanting to be open to growing this bench, but needing the opportunities to actually engage the bench. And so that's something we're still working on. And then something that I've still been like struggling with, and I don't really know which direction to go, is I think I really am leaning towards um, full-time employees and trying to grow like our full-time team. Um, rather than only relying on independent consultants. Because I think independent consultants, like I've mentioned before, play a huge role in their subject matter expertise. But when it comes to the sustainability of the business, I really need to build more collective and shared vision that sometimes doesn't work when you work with independent consultants who are all juggling lots of different things and doing things their own way. And so I'm trying to still figure out like what our future composition is like when it comes to like full-time versus consultants and and I think it'll happen organically that's what I'm thinking but a lot of thought yeah. is going into it right now yeah because I can imagine trying to onboard basically independent consultants into your business structure your business processes mm -hmm. your values and vision and everything can be time consuming yeah exactly it is and then there's a balance to play too because um I honor like their, their own autonomy and independence, like as an independent consultant, like they have other clients and other work. And like, I don't want to overstep and say, this is how I, I do those things because I was that freelancer independent consultant. And I didn't like when, when firms did that to me, because, you know, I had my independence for a reason. And so I want to like really honor folks independence and their own strengths and kind of use them in a way that not sorry, that's not the word. Not use, but collaborate and you know yeah. engage consultants in a way that really honors their strengths and like yeah. makes them feel valuable and and is more. I what's really important to me is that my relationship relationships with consultants are more transformational than transactional. Like I really don't like the idea of just kind of like, hey, you go off in a corner and give me this, and I'll pay you this. Like 
I want it to be transformational. Everyone is gaining something. It's really mutual, the relationship. Um, but it can be hard when some consultants don't want that. They want to just be paid and out the door because they have other priorities, which I totally respect. But with full-time employees, there's a little bit more culture and teamwork and training and capacity building that's possible. Right. That's not possible with consultants. So I'm just learning that. But then on the downside, full-time staff means having enough of a cash flow to make sure that I can afford benefits and bonuses and all the things that are important to like really um, treating employees well. And so I'm really conscious of that. So I'm trying to kind of grow fast enough to do that, but then not too fast because yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And especially in the type of business that we're in where yeah. uh, the work is not consistent and ongoing, right? That right. contracts will come in and out and there might yeah. be lulls that we want to avoid, but there also might be some crazy busy periods that yes. also can't really avoid. <laughs> yes. It is really, it's intense. It's a lot yeah. of just like, yeah, ups and downs and it never ends. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that in 2021, we, we exceeded our revenue goals for the year already. And it's still September. We still have a whole quarter left, but then I look at 2022 and I'm like, okay, now we start again from zero. And so it's like it, that business development hustle, that cycle, it never really ends. It's like a continuous, um, you know, continuous, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like we, we never, we can never stop building the business. Um, but I'm hoping that it's easier over time. Like the more work we have under our belt, the more client referrals we'll get. We're already experiencing that with every great project and with every happy client, there's like, you know, their their network of other clients. And, exactly. and it's so what's been the most rewarding process about starting intention to impact? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, like I said, do being able to build a successful business, but then kind of on my own terms or like true to my values. I think that's the, the, the most important part and what I'm having the most fun with and the most rewarding part. Um, so being able to kind of like disrupt business as usual and not have to follow any status quo has been really cool. So just an yeah. example for you, um, when writing proposals, like people always talk about level of effort and level of effort is usually communicated as time. But for me, it's really important that we're not just like exchanging time for money because that's not a sustainable business model. For me, like it's about exchanging value for money. And so when I think about level of effort, I'm redefining that formula to think beyond time. Like my level of effort, it's not just about my time. It's about my energy. It's about, you know, my, um, my expertise itself. It's about how complicated is this project? How demanding is this? And what does it look like in relationship to my other projects? And so all of those variables go into defining level of effort. And as an entrepreneur, I can do things like that. Like I can think like, okay, at intention to impact, what does level of effort mean to us? And it's not just about me calling the shots, but it's about me being able to have the conversations and to engage consultants and teammates and and clients in these kinds of conversations in a way that, you know, if I wasn't an entrepreneur, I might not think, be able to think that way. I might not have the space and the autonomy to do so. And so I think that's been really the most rewarding part is kind of like 
making it up as I go and realizing that it's working, you know, mm-hmm. like everything we're doing is I'm every, I'm, every time I do something for the first time, it's like a new adventure. And then I either, you know, that didn't work and I'll do it differently or like, oh, that really worked. This is now a process. This is now like how we do things um, until something else comes along. But like just that invention period is really fun. Yeah. Oh, that does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I went to academia is because it's, it's always new, right? You're always yeah. working with new people, working with new clients, working, yes. um, but then you also do get to build some of those long-term relationships, like with your yes. colleagues and with your students when they graduate and stuff. But uh, yeah. that newness is what's really exciting for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, something I thought about a lot recently is like, the newness of every challenge is really rewarding and in, in, a, in a fun way because it's like every time we're grappling with a challenge, it's because we leveled up to even mm-hmm. be able to get that challenge. And yeah. I literally feel like I'm in a video game sometimes because it's like <laughs> we solve this challenge and then we level up and, and then there's a new set of challenges. And then yeah. it's kind of like we can welcome it with gratitude because I'm like, oh, I'm thankful for this stress because it means like, you know, for example, like being too busy, it's like, wow, I have so much opportunity. And so it's the, the, the ability to reframe challenges as successes has been like a, a game changer for us, but then also like a really rewarding part of this strategy. Yeah, very cool. Well, uh, I think maybe we'll start wrapping up. And one thing that I like to end the podcast with is something that I love that Code Switch does, NPR's Code Switch episodes. They always ask like, what song is, or at least they used to, they haven't done in the past few episodes, um, but they'd ask things like, what song is giving you life right now? And I love that. But I'm curious, what in evaluation is giving you life right now? Hmm. I think it has to be kind of all the things we've been talking about and my dissertation topic, like, a role of small business and evaluation and cracking this code of like how not just thinking how can I be a successful business but how can I do it in the field of evaluation in a way that advances evaluation because my true passion is evaluation it's not just business because you know if it was I would have gotten an MBA instead of a PhD or I'd be like selling I don't know computer software or something else like if I was just in it to make money for the business I would not be in this field. (laughs) I will say that this is a more challenging arena to be thinking about business. And I love that about it. And so when you say like, what lights me up about evaluation, it's like the potential for small business to innovate in evaluation and to help the field through like equitable business practices. Like that gets me really excited. And And it just makes me think that it can create so many opportunities for students in evaluation for other practitioners. Um, so I just think about the ripple effects and for women, especially women of color, um, like myself, just like, how can this model, how can this work that I'm wrestling with on a daily basis, like turn into something that others can learn from and can empower people to, to be their own entrepreneur and to figure out like other ways of building a business and the knowledge economy that supports yeah. um, I love that. Cause I wonder, I, I, it makes me wonder how many other business owners in evaluation, for example, or even independent consultants think about that. Like, how am I giving back to the field the broadly, yeah. right? Beyond just like presenting at AEA, which is important, but is there, is there a bigger impact that you are making in your work to our field yeah. of evaluation? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't really like 
thought about it in this way, but I mean, I have, I've thought about it, but I haven't been asked about it or articulated it in this way, Mm. but it is exciting to have that opportunity beyond just like our strategic goals. It's like, what are the implications? And that's what I'm finding in my dissertation is the marketplace. It's full of implications. Every business decision has an implication for other suppliers and other and commissioners. So it's really, it's not just, um, you know, this linear path, it's a system that we're in. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of unintended consequences, good and bad as part of that system. Yep. Um, so I, I know you're close to being done with your dissertation. So, uh, so you've got close. that. I know so close. <laughs> uh, what's next for you once that is done though? Oh, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm living the dream. So continuing to build intention to impact um, thinking about how I can take my dissertation and my actual experiences and I think turn it into something that I can share more accessibly. Because as you know, no one wants to read um, a like 200 page dissertation, but my committee and even them, I don't know if they'll want to read it. No, I'm sure they will. But yeah, I think like turning some of that dissertation work into um, more accessible resources, I think would be really yeah. cool. And and like using my actual business experience to kind of complement the, the literature itself. Yeah. So I think that's, that's next. And then just thinking about different growth strategies for 2022. I'm always, I always have to think ahead. Um, and then, yeah. And then being, oh, this is like a whole nother can of worms that I won't get into too much, but um, I'm recently married and kind of in a stage in my life that I'm thinking about, we're thinking about starting a family. And so that's a whole nother side of like feminist business practice is like, how do I set intention to impact up in a way that it can be a thriving, profitable consulting firm while being able to afford a maternity leave for myself and like have more of a, a work-life balance. I think right now I don't have that balance because I don't need it as much. Like I yeah. luckily I don't have a very um, needy husband and, and <laughs> he's like, he does a lot of the homework. He takes care of the pup. Um, I'm lucky in that way, but I would like to have more balance soon. And so how can I kind of set myself up in a way that I can have more sustainable balance while still growing? Um, and I have no idea how to do that, but hopefully I, I have a lot, there's a lot of successful women out there that I'm learning from. And so I feel very lucky that there's a lot of great mentors in our field specifically that um, have been able to kind of give me advice and I'll continue to tap them for advice along the way. I feel so fortunate to be able to be part of this journey a little bit through our mastermind and get to see all that. So I'm excited to talk more about that and reflect on it with you coming, moving forward. Likewise. Thank you, Dana. This was really fun. Thank you. Is there anything that you want to share with our listeners before we end today's podcast? Um, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot, but if anyone has any other questions about entrepreneurship, especially evaluation entrepreneurship, which I like to call evalpreneurship because I'm corny like that, um, feel free to reach out. My email is nina at intention to impact.com. And yeah, that's, that's it. So I would love to, I love chatting about this stuff. So please hit me up if you have any questions about anything that I shared today. Awesome. Yeah. And I will have the link to intention to impact website uh, and they have a contact form on there and the join us form if you're interested in that collaborative. So reach out on there and thank you so much. Nina. I really appreciate it. Thanks Dana. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland.